The lives of low-income families are complicated. There's a lot of stress. It's really hard to raise kids as a single parent, for example, on very little money. And so while every parent wants the best for their children, the stress and the complexity of life in low-income families can make it more challenging to convert those fabulous great intentions into routine habit. Last fall, all across Chicago, low-income families with preschool-aged children brought home iPads cased in kid-proof plastic covers. Each came with an app that allowed parents and children to scroll through hundreds of storybooks, from classics like The Ugly Duckling to modern bestsellers like Llama Llama Red Pajama. But what looked like story time was actually high-stakes social research in action. Chicago Harris's Behavioral Insights and Parenting Lab was looking at a new intervention called Parents and Children Together. The goal was to determine whether a series of low-cost, light-touch nudges could get parents to spend more time reading to their kids. Well, as of this month, the results are in. So, did it work? I sat down with Professor Ariel Khalil, the director of the Behavioral Insights and Parenting Lab, to learn why this project was so groundbreaking and to find out whether behavioral techniques could help nudge families toward educational equality. The problem we're trying to address here is really the vast differences in learning opportunities for children from economically advantaged homes compared to their economically disadvantaged peers. We see that economically disadvantaged children have far less access to enriching home environments, to parental engagement, to parental time. And really, the achievement gap that we think of begins, you know, as early as researchers can measure it. And on almost any relevant dimension by which we measure the quality, say, of children's home learning environments, low-income children look far worse. So they have access to fewer books, to fewer educationally stimulating materials in their home. They're taken on far fewer outings to culturally enriching places like libraries or museums. We see very large gaps, in particular in the amount and the kind of time that parents spend with kids in low-income versus higher-income families. So not only do children of less educated or lower-income parents benefit from less time with their parents, when their parents do spend time with them, it tends to be in less developmentally relevant or developmentally stimulating activities. And what are the sort of longer-term consequences of that achievement gap? Well, what I would say is that schools are not capable of closing that gap. And I think that's important because I think we we sort of imagine that schools might be the great equalizer. And we think, well, maybe it is not so relevant what kind of skills children come to preschool or kindergarten with because schools will be able to close the gap. But this turns out not to be the case. And so really, this is an important factor in the intergenerational transmission of poverty and inequality because, you know, low-income kids, as we know, perform less well at kindergarten, but we see those same gaps in elementary school. In high school, we see vast differences in high school graduation rates, in college going, in college graduation between low and high income kids. And we see those differences played out in the labor market later in life. And what's behind that parenting gap? What's, what's keeping these parents from doing what they might know to be best for their children? 
That's a great question. And it's really important to take as our starting point the fact that we don't think that information alone is the problem. We do not think, for instance, let me just be clear, that low-income parents don't care about their children, <laughs> that they're not interested in investing in their children's development, or more perhaps controversially, that they don't know what to do. We and others have quite a bit of evidence to suggest that, that low-income parents know quite a bit about child development, and they do understand, and they have heard messages about, for example, reading to their kid and the importance of a variety of other developmentally promoting activities. But we find that there's a gap between what we call aspirational parenting and actual parenting. And for a variety of reasons that we're not completely sure of, that gap is bigger in low-income than in higher-income families. The lives of low-income families are complicated. There's a lot of stress. It's really hard to raise kids as a single parent, for example, on very little money. And so while every parent wants the best for their children, the stress and the complexity of life in low-income families can make it more challenging to convert those fabulous great intentions into routine habits that higher income families for a variety of reasons are better able and perhaps better equipped to do. And there's of course been a lot of work in trying to kind of close this gap between aspirational and actual parenting. Um, how did you want to innovate on that with this study? You're absolutely right. There's been a lot of work and there's been quite a lot of money spent on supporting parental engagement in low-income families. Most of those programs are on the one hand, quite intensive. They are very demanding of parents' time. One could imagine a, a one-year, a two-year, even a three-year program that parents are invited to participate in uh, with you know, a home visitor, say, once a month, a series of parenting classes, a whole variety of things that, that parents are expected to participate in to take up this program. On the other hand, these programs are also extremely expensive. They're expensive to develop. They're expensive to staff. Um, there's costs associated with supporting parents to come to all the different activities. And so we said the combination of intensive and expensive is not the right one. <laughs> and how do we know that? We know that for a couple of reasons. We see that some of these intensive, expensive programs have done a really excellent job in lowering the risk of child abuse and neglect, for example, in high-risk families. But they have done a less good job in addressing some of these other problems with which we began our conversation, the, the home literacy environment, the, the quality of, of parent-child interaction. The second problem we can observe is that parents drop out of these programs early and often. So, you know, one can see that halfway through a program that maybe is designed to last a year or more, half or more of the parents who started out are no longer there. And one could conclude by revealed preference <laughs> that these families are not interested in participating in a program with this kind of design. Or maybe it's simply not possible for them to, to commit to such a long-term effort. So after having surveyed the landscape of parenting interventions and after having decided that much of what we see fell into that quadrant of expensive and intensive, we said, look, is there a different way to do this? Is there a low-cost, light-touch approach to helping support new habits in parent-child engagement? 
we were really inspired, particularly being here at the University of Chicago, in the whole field of behavioral economics, which has for a number of years discussed the possibility of using behavioral tools in this kind of low-cost, light-touch way to change complicated behaviors that we formerly thought were very expensive and difficult to change, like smoking or health-promoting behaviors like exercise or eating well or saving for retirement. These are big social problems. The field of behavioral economics came along and pointed out to us that by addressing the cognitive biases that get in the way of our good intentions in saving for the future, in eating right, in exercising regularly, in adhering to the regimen of medicines that our doctor has prescribed us, we could actually move the needle uh, in a meaningful way for a very low cost with very little demand on an individual's time or attention. And what were the cognitive biases that you suspected or knew were the culprit here? Well, one thing we're really interested in is is this notion of future orientation or in the language of behavioral economics, present bias. The notion that very few of us think far ahead into the future, think about the consequences of what we do today for a long-run outcome. When are you going to start your diet? Tomorrow always sounds like the best day to, to adopt a new habit. And so one can imagine, you know, there's many examples you can think of in your own life. I'm sure you've done this. I've done this. Mm-hmm. And what we thought is that, you know what, parenting really isn't any different from any of these other behaviors. Parenting is really a series of habits that to promote optimal development, one has to engage in every day or almost every day. And one of the reasons we do this for our children is for the long run payoff we imagine will arise from this. So, you know, parenting is stressful is in many instances unpleasant, (laughs) requires giving up our own leisure or, you know, work, if that's where we find utility, to engage with our children in a way that promotes their school readiness or that, you know, we imagine is going to have some long-run payoff. So we read books to our children as parents. We, we engage with them. We teach them how to, how to think about the world, not because we think that tomorrow they're going to know how to read or tomorrow they're going to make great decisions on their own, but because these behaviors we do now will have a long-run payoff. But this is a challenge, and it requires effort, and most of all, it requires the ability to adopt and sustain a habit. So as I say, we didn't want to do a study that took as its premise that low-income parents didn't know how to parent their children, that they didn't have goals for their own children's development. We wanted to design an intervention that helped parents meet the goals that they themselves already had for their children. And the route we wanted to take to achieving that was to help parents develop new habits. And the structure we put around doing that involved a variety of tools that we drew from our knowledge in behavioral science. And what we did was we lent parents in our study an iPad for six weeks. And the iPad really only had one important thing on it, and that was this digital library that was loaded with about 500 books. We had both English and Spanish-speaking families in our study, and so the digital library had books in both languages. It had books with words, books without words, reading 
comprehension was not an issue. And we told parents to take the iPads home and use it to read with their children. Those parents whom we randomly assigned to the intervention or the treatment group got, in addition, that package of nudges or prompts or supports or whatever you want to call them to encourage and provide feedback on the amount of time that they were actually using the digital library. And that included goal setting. So think about the future. You know, what is your goal for this behavior that you want to engage in? What are your aspirations? Let's make those concrete. Let's make a public commitment to what our goal is. I want to read to my child 20 minutes this week. I want to read to my child five minutes this week. It doesn't really matter what the goal is. It's the act of setting a goal, making a commitment, a public commitment to having a goal, no matter what it is. The second tool we drew on were reminders. So you've made a goal. Well, it helps to be reminded. In fact, it helps to be reminded every day <laughs> of what your goal is. And there's a mechanism that people are using a lot these days, and that is text message reminders. You know, simple, easy to use, widely available to low and high income parents alike. Feedback. So how do you know you're making any progress? We know that progress is self-motivating. You feel great when you're on a diet and you see on the scale that you've lost five pounds. Parents can respond the same way to feedback on their own goals. So we devised on the iPad a tool that objectively measured the amount of time that parents were reading to their kids, and we provided parents with that information every week, and we showed them what their actual time was relative to what their goal was. And finally, getting a kind of social reward. We all love to be rewarded for meeting our goals. This doesn't have to be a financial reward. In fact, in the realm of parenting, getting a kind of a, a, a virtual pat on the back or a, a, just a, a, a very simple visual boost of encouragement is very self-motivating. So all in all, we had about 150 families participate in this study, and it was a randomized control trial. We recruited volunteer parents from Head Start sites across the city of Chicago, and we then followed all 150 families for six weeks that period of time during which they were borrowing the iPads and during which the treatment group members were setting goals, getting text message reminders, getting feedback on their goals. And at the end of six weeks, we measured quite simply whether there was a difference in the amount of time that the treatment and control parents had spent reading with their children. One of the, one of the things we observed initially was that parents' goals for the amount of time they were going to spend reading in the upcoming week were frankly, wildly over-optimistic. <laughs> I mean, you know, hours of reading parents aspired to, and, and that's not realistic for anybody, probably. But there was so much enthusiasm about the process. And over time, over the course of those six weeks, the, the goals became much more aligned with the actual, basically the goals came down <laughs> uh, and kind of closed that gap. And that's fine. But it really conveyed to us that there was, you know, a lot of enthusiasm for, for this idea. Parents loved getting text messages. This is basically how most people communicate these days. And so that was a really great way to communicate with families. And if parents met the goal that they had set for that particular week, um, the screen of the iPad lit up with like a dancing bear. I mean, it's so simple, costless, and it was a real thrill. It's like a badge, you know, it's, a, it's just a sort of visual, yay, you did it, 
a, just a boost. And then we also um, let parents know if they had the highest level of reading among a group of other parents who were also at their Head Start program. So if we didn't identify parents by name, but everybody in that preschool got a text saying, you know, parent number 142, so we just identified parents by their study number, had the highest amount of reading this week. And so it was a little bit of a kind of peer-to-peer -peer competition that we set up, which again has been shown to be really fun if you're the winner, and also very motivating. If you're not the winner that week, you really want to be the winner the next week. And on your team's end, there was a lot of data coming in, it sounds like because these iPads are recording video and also audio? Yeah, so the iPads, when they're out in the family's homes, are recording, exactly, video and audio of the storybook session. This was critically important to us from a scientific perspective because we wanted an objective measure of the amount of time that parents were doing this particular behavior that we wanted them to do. We did not want to rely on parents telling us oh yeah, I read X number of minutes this week. Because if you know you're in a study that's designed to increase the amount of time you spent reading, you can imagine the kind of bias that imparts on your self-report of how much time you're actually doing that. So yeah, these are huge files that parents are collecting on the iPads. We had a a lot of technical challenges. It was quite complicated. It was a, a Herculean effort by our, our field manager, Jill Gandhi, and Carrie Lintz, the associate director of the lab and of the Center for Human Potential and Public Policy. Together, they managed a huge team of Harris School master's students and undergrads from the U of C, being out in the field, getting the iPads back from parents every week, bringing them back to the Harris School to download the data, bringing the iPads back, getting them back to the families on the same day so that the families could repeat the cycle for the next week. It was a massive, massive effort on our field staff. And so was it worth it? It was totally worth it because at the end of six weeks, you know, you do all this work and basically comes down to a t-test. What's the difference in means between the treatment and control? And in this instance, it was gigantic. The difference in the amount of reading that treatment group parents did in relative to controls was a full standard deviation, which relative to treatment impacts that other parenting programs have achieved is absolutely gigantic. The very best kind of parenting interventions have really only moved the needle on the order of, you know, 15 to 20 percent of a standard deviation. So these were just gigantic impacts, and we we couldn't believe it. <laughs> you know, you should have heard the 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 screams of delight coming out of one 153C when our great PhD student Sebastian Gallegos brought the analysis back to us and said, "You guys are not going to believe what we found." And in addition, even more exciting was we had enough resources in terms of time and money on the, on the study end to say, okay, we've answered one question. It's unbelievable. We're so thrilled. We really think this worked. But, you know, one could say, if I hound you to death every single day, if I, you know, have all these nudges, all these supports, I, I could get you to do anything. I mean, what happens if I take those supports away? What happens if I stop texting you? You know, what are you going to do tomorrow? This is really 
the key question, have we succeeded in forming a new habit? So we had the resources to do just that, to take away the treatment and to return to our treatment and control families, give them the iPad with the digital library, but don't give the treatment group the treatment, okay? And to say, look, in the absence of the treatment, is their behavior sustained? And what we did was we did that in the immediate period following the six-week intervention. We, we basically extended the study period for three more weeks, let treatment and controls keep the iPads for three more weeks, but take away the treatment. We also returned after three months and went back to the original families after a three-month hiatus, gave both treatment and controls the iPads, you know, and did nothing and basically said, here's the iPad back, you know, use it however you want for three weeks. And in each instance for that short-term and that longer-term follow-up, obviously what we wanted to see is was there still a treatment control difference in the behavior? And the answer is yes, there was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our sample size got smaller, especially because these families are very mobile and it was hard to find a lot of them after a three-month hiatus. But the numbers were all pointing in the right direction to suggest that there was still a quantitatively very important difference between treatment and control in this behavior. So that was super exciting. The other really exciting part of our analysis was that, you know, we really are trying to build theory here. We're not just trying to, you know, throw something up against the wall and see if it sticks and say, well, does this particular collection of behavioral tools work for this particular outcome? We really want to learn about why they do so. And as I said earlier, we have a theory that it's difficult for anybody to adopt any new habit, and it's difficult for parents to adopt and sustain a habit of engaging with their kids if they're really focused on the present at the expense of focusing on the future. And you know, one can call this impatience, or as I say, present bias. And we thought, well, if this theory is correct, we should see a difference in how the treatment affected parents in the study who were more or less patient. And again, our PhD student, Sebastian Gallegos, devised a very uh, clever and complicated, but very clever and very effective means of measuring that quality among our parents. So what we had was an indicator of how present-oriented our parents in our study were. And what we found is that the treatment was very powerful for those parents who were initially less patient or less future-oriented, which is exactly what you'd expect because our treatment was designed to get them to focus on the future. That's exactly what you would expect to find from a theoretical perspective, and that just made our study all the more interesting to us because it really gave us a lot of insight into why these behavioral tools might work and also insight into why is it that parents are not investing in their kids along these particular dimensions. I mean, the cost for us, you know, sending 30 research assistants out into the field every day of every week, yeah, that's expensive. But, you know, much research is expensive. From an intervention perspective, however, what we did was very low cost. And that's another mission of our lab. We only want to design and test interventions that we think 
um, families or institutions like preschool settings can adopt and use themselves. So what we aspire to is to develop an app that incorporates all these kind of nudges, the goal setting, the feedback, the text messaging, and the social rewards. One can imagine an app that would have all those features into which objective data along any kind of behavior for which you might have data could be fed. And a preschool could use that, a parent could use that. You know, one has to think carefully about um, the data that you would feed into that app. But what we really want to do is design a tool that can be widely adopted. And we have a, you know, a, a mission to, to make that happen in our lab. Big thanks to Professor Ariel Khalila for taking the time to talk with us today. You can read the results from the PACT study for yourself and learn more about the Behavioral Insights and Parenting Lab on our episode page. Just go to harris.uchicago.edu and click on the Radio Harris microphone icon. That's it for today. This episode was produced by me, Jake Smith. And please join us next time for a very special discussion with Ann Richard, a Chicago Harris alumna who's now serving as Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration. We'll hear how she thinks the U.S. should handle the worst refugee crisis since World War II.